0: Well, welcome to the podcast, everybody. This is the Solar Insights Podcast. My name is Eric Star. We've got Ian Levy here from Fan Sighted. We're going to introduce him in a second, but I wanted to thank everybody for listening to my podcast the last couple of weeks. We got uh, over two thousand people listening to the episode a couple of weeks ago with Matt Norlander, and over three hundred people listening with Dave King last week about the suns. And we've got Ian Levy here today. How are you doing, Ian?
1: I'm doing great. Thanks a lot for having me on.
0: No problem. Uh, Ian is the, uh, senior NBA editor and columnist for Fansighted, the editor-in-chief of the Step Back, and we're going to talk some playoffs and some suns, so we want to start off with, um, well one thing, the, um, Rockets and the Spurs are playing right now, it's a close game here at halftime, two-point game, Rockets up by two, who do you think wins the series? This is game five, tied tied series, what do you think?
1: Um... I guess I'd lean towards the Rockets. I don't know. It seems like it's back and forth, and uh, I don't. Just about any scenario seems plausible. Um, but yeah, I've been fascinated by the Rockets all season. Uh, their offensive style is so extreme. Uh, watching James Harden work is just fascinating. Um, such sort of precise execution all the time, and just kind of you know leaning into this this uh, extreme strength. Um, so yeah, I guess uh, I guess I'll go with my gut there and, and stick with the Rockets. But no, nothing would surprise me.
0: That's kind of what I was thinking of. Nothing would surprise me because the Spurs are the Spurs. The Rockets have so much shooting that it's just a perfectly uh, rounded out roster to fit around James Harden. I mean, also I think Beverly. I think someone actually just mentioned on Twitter, but Beverly is such an um, underrated player now, and like he's on an easy, he's on a nice contract. He's just really playing. I was watching him a couple uh, – during the series sometime. And he's like – he actually has offense now. Like, do you remember a couple years ago when he was just known for running to Russell Westbrook and being a pest on defense?
1: Yeah, he's he's come a long way. And it's interesting the, the way the roster is built this year. I mean, people have um, – you know, obviously the, the three-point shooting is the most obvious characteristic of the team, and they, um, you know, they really emphasized that this offseason with with, uh, Eric Gordon and Ryan Anderson and then trading for, um, trading for Lou Williams in the middle of the season. But I also think it was really interesting, um, you know, the past couple of years, it seemed like the, the, the plan was we've got Harden. We need to find a second and a third star uh, to fit around him. And, uh, you know, Dwight Howard had such a miserable year last year. The chemistry between him and Harden was so terrible, both sort of uh, emotionally and interpersonally and, you know, actual basketball chemistry on the floor. Um, And so it was interesting that they sort of got better this year by abandoning the search for a a complimentary star for Harden and saying, you know, we're going to just let Harden do even more. And we're going to make sure that our, you know, our role players are are perfect. and that know that we've got as much depth as possible in this sort of player archetype. and um, so it's, it's sort of interesting to you, you know, everybody's so focused on you gotta get a, you gotta get a star, and then once you got a star, you gotta get your second star and you know you use the first one to lure the second one and then once you've got two then the you know the third one comes in free agency and then you're set and then you can be a championship contender. Uh, it's just interesting to see the the Rockets uh, you know find that that transcendent player and then instead of you know just looking for another superb talent to put next to him, really just thinking about fit and thinking about role players. Obviously their hand was forced a little bit, but um, yeah, it's, it's been really interesting watching them all year.
0: Yeah. It's very interesting. I think it only, it works primarily or it works, especially because Harden is so good with the ball in his hands. If it, if it was more of a, I don't know, just out of the hat DeRozan type, it's like, He's good, but like Harden is so good at orchestrating and knowing where to pass the ball, and he's so good in ISO and so good at keeping the ball moving that he can be that sole playmaker. Real, I mean, not sole playmaker, but the person who's moving the whole offense.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting too because um, you know when you talk about stars, and it's a little bit messy, and uh, I think sometimes people um, let. The, uh, sort of the perception of a player or their uh, their media profile or how the fans see them and, and sort of let that bleed in a description of a star, but I suppose you could argue that most of the other uh, good teams, not the Warriors, but most of the other teams that are still hanging around in the playoffs are uh, sort of fit that mold. Uh, you know, the Spurs are a one-star team. It's, it's Kawhi Leonard and a bunch of complementary role players. Um you know the the Celtics are sort of Isaiah Thomas and a bunch of complementary role players. The Wizards are, um, I guess, be a little bit muddier there. I don't think there's quite as much separation between Russell and everybody else on that team. Uh, but he's clearly their star, and I think you could argue that Beal and Otto Porter are not not really stars uh, in terms of their production on the court. They're you know they're sort of very good complementary role players as well. Um, and even the Cavaliers, you know, LeBron is their star and. Um, You know, Kyrie Irving and Kevin Love are kind of in that place where they seem like stars because they've been the best player on their team, uh, you know, in the past, and they score a bunch of points, but neither player's a very good defender. And if you sort of look at their overall value, um, they're probably fall below that elite star level. So, you know, even for the Cavaliers, it's LeBron and some role players. It's just that, you know,
0: uh, Kyrie's role all happens to be, you know, scoring 22 points and killing people in isolation. Yeah, I think the funny thing is about about Kyrie and uh and Love. It's like they're sacrificing right now because they could be stars in their prime. I mean, remember how dominant Kevin was Kevin Love was in, in the in Minnesota? He was so good.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean he is a terrific player and he could do a lot more and obviously he's he's bought into You know, being a part of a championship team and willing to, you know, shave some parts off his game so that, uh, you know, he can help the team win. And, um, you know, happy for him. (laughs) It worked out for him last year. Um, But I think, you know, you look at the the Minnesota teams with Kevin Love or the, the Cavaliers teams where Irving was their best player. And, you know, those teams were... I don't think they, I don't think Love made the, the playoffs at all with the Timberwolves. Nope. Certainly the Cavaliers weren't a playoff team with Irving, and so, you know, maybe if those teams keep on their trajectory and, and player movement doesn't happen, maybe those are, are sort of low-seed playoff teams. But I don't think either of those are the championship contenders. So oh, yeah. I think about them, and you know, as uh, the, the kind of, like, single guy who could carry a, carry a team into that uh, upper tier, and I don't think either guy's there. So, um yeah, and you can split hairs there forever with the definitions, but it's it's interesting to see the team construction. Obviously, the Warriors uh, are, are um, they they really stand out, but I don't think. Um, I don't think that it's necessarily that they follow the same model that everybody else does, that their stars are just better than everybody else's stars. It seems like more and more they're, they're sort of really unique in the having multiple stars. It seems like yeah, yeah, looking around the league this year, it seems like that's less and less the norm.
0: Definitely. I think the stars just aligned for the Warriors with the Steph's ankles, the contract, the, the, the calf spike with Durant and then Draymond's kind of, emergence and then clay is the, that other addition there um, I wanted to get back to the, the Rockets um, so I guess pushing it forward we you say the Rockets will win I'm still I'm trying to think I guess I'll pick Spurs but I, it could be go either way which team has a better chance I think I think it can only go five games um, with either team but which team has a better chance at going farther against the Warriors? I would think it's Houston. Um, I think,
1: you know, San Antonio's played them tough. I think San Antonio uh, knows them. And, um, yeah, I mean, San Antonio has a lot of veteran experience, uh, a lot of parts. Uh, Popovich is sensational, obviously. I just think Houston... Um, Houston wouldn't necessarily have to adapt that much. I feel like Houston. Um, I feel like Houston would just sort of go out and do their thing, and um, I feel like that would, to, to some degree, make it simple for them. I don't know how, how much extra complexity or how many extra wrinkles would, would be folded into their game plan. Um, you know, Rob Mahoney had that great. Uh, uh, breakaway podcast about the Rockets earlier this year, and the premise was of uh, the Rockets, uh, the, you know, the whole episode fo- focusing on the Atoning the Rockets, the whole premise was what would happen if a team just ran their best play every time down the floor? Um, and that's, you know, that's what the Rockets are doing with their spread pick and roll. And it's, um, I think they could hurt the Warriors uh I think they would put more pressure on the Warriors than the Spurs would. Um, I think there are some ways that they can, uh, some interesting ways that they can match up with the, uh, um, with the Warriors. Obviously we've seen in this series that the Rockets are, have been sort of comfortable, uh, when they have to go small, uh, letting, um, You know the Spurs take uh, Harden down in the post, and they're willing to sort of live with whatever offense comes from that. Um, And I think they could they could present a similar look against Golden State. You know, Beverly is there to chase Curry. Um, Ariza uh, can work on Durant. you know Eric Gordon uh, on Clay Thompson if they need to, and and you can hide uh, Harden on Draymond Green and sort of make him a scorer. And you know he's he's been great in these playoffs, but um, you know asking Draymond to sort of beat you on offense, um, you know, puts puts the Warriors sort of in their weakest offensive position. And, and I think um, I think Houston just the way that they play and their ability to sort of um, just go right at the Warriors without having to sort of. Uh, try and get creative, or try and get cute with lineups and rotations and, and sets and stuff like that. I think uh, I think that probably presents the toughest look. But I agree with you; it's you know probably at best maybe it's a five or six game series with yeah. the Warriors advancing.
0: Yeah, for sure. And the Spurs, it's like it's defense. Can they they can defend better than the Rockets? And for the Rockets, is that they can make shots with they can keep up with the Warriors in terms of shooting there? But then I mean, how high is a Warriors Rockets um, scoring? It's like Combined for what two fifty?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, there'd be some high-scoring games. And I think um, you know, for the Spurs as well as Patty Mills has been playing. I think not having Tony Parker would hurt them in a matchup against the Warriors. Yep. His ability to sort of um, put Curry through the ringer and sort of attack him as the as that defensive as that weak uh, link on defense for the Warriors or relatively weak link because he's not that weak, but. Um, yeah, I think I think that would uh I think that would put the put the Spurs at a little bit of a disadvantage not having Parker.
0: Yeah, cuz really making Curry work on defense really helps keep them down their potential in a, in any particular game. Although Clay can guard whatever, let's say Westbrook or somebody, but also Iguodala, that's what Iguodala's there for, to guard LeBron, to guard Westbrook, to guard whoever. But when you make Curry have to defend it's harder for him to get his groove going. Um, let's uh, turn our attention to the East. Um, I guess same question, the uh, the Celtics and the Wizards, I believe, I believe they're tied, right? Two and two. Um, which do you think will win, and which do you think poses a better shot at pushing at all the, the Cavaliers? Briefly enough, I think there's probably a bigger gap between Cleveland and these two teams uh, than there is in the West,
1: as good as the Warriors have looked. Uh, I guess I um, would lean towards the Celtics. Obviously, they've looked real bad the past uh, past two games, and even in the first two games where they were beating the the Wizards, they had some really ugly, uh, they had some really ugly quarters. Um, but I think Boston's depth will ultimately win out. I think that's what's gonna uh, that's what's gonna separate them from the Wizards. And if you think about a, a matchup with Cleveland, I feel like the the depth would kind of be the wild card. Um, you know, Cleveland's rotation is still kind of short. Um, and the Cleveland is better the shorter that rotation is. And so, um, you know, Boston can, can get out and run, can sort of push them with energy. Um, and, and maybe wear them down a little bit with their depth. You know, Marcus Smart and, Peter Rozier have been really good. Kelly Olinick off the bench. Um, so I think that's, that's, uh, you know, maybe the only advantage Boston would have. Um, I think. Uh, I don't think the Wizards are good enough. Their bench units have just been a disaster even in the playoffs, uh, as good as their starting lineup has been. Um, and I yeah, I don't know. I, I I don't trust I don't trust them quite as much. Uh and I think, you know, ultimately even if it was Boston advancing, I think Cleveland would would, you know, probably make pretty short work of them. Uh Isaiah Thomas has been a lot of fun. Uh his offensive performances have been fantastic, but he's um, he's such a, a weak link uh, defensively. Not that he doesn't try, not that he isn't engaged, not that he isn't working on that end. But being so small, he just he is a, a mismatch uh, or an advantage to be had all the time. But what we've seen from the Cavs in the past two series is just. Uh, like laser precision in identifying a mismatch or moving a mismatch around to get it where they wanted it. You know, we saw them just, you know, destroy Jeff Teague in that first series against the Pacers, um, catch him on switches and let, you know, Love and LeBron work in the post against a backboard player, uh, get Kyrie on a bigger player and let Kyrie go to work. Uh, you know, they did a lot of that to Toronto too. And I think once you get to that Boston series, anytime Isaiah's on the floor, uh, Cleveland's just going to hunt him out, and they're going to yeah, they're just
0: going to take advantage. And the problem is that it has to be on the court for them to score enough. But um, we'll get to Boston, Cleveland, because I kind of agree with you. But uh, it's a little side note. What do you think the Wizards need next year to make to take the next step?
1: Um, they need to get Porter back. Um, Obviously, he's he's been really big for them, and I think he's what, uh, he, he, like he he's what pushes them to another tier. Uh, you know, the second half of this the season where they really went on their run. Um, you know, Wall and Beal elevated their game, but Porter just sort of adds another dimension because he can score, because he can defend, because he can facilitate, uh, because he's a little bit more versatile um, offensively. You know, he can spot up, he can handle the ball a little bit. Um, he can exploit a mismatch in the post. He can operate, uh, you know, really well either as a scorer or a facilitator in the middle of the floor, you know, coming off screens and pin downs around the elbows and stuff like that. Um, I think he just sort of adds another dimension to their um, – to their team and then, you know, it's their bench. Their bench is just, uh, catastrophic. I mean, uh, Bogdanovich has, has been a nice pickup and, you know, Brandon Jennings has, has played some nice minutes for them here or there, but those guys are, are offense only almost exclusively. Um, uh had some minutes here and there in the playoffs where he's looked okay, but he's all you know. There's also huge stretches where he's just a disaster. Um, you know, teams don't respect him as a floor spacer, so he's collapsing the um, collapsing the defense. He's uh, not a bad on-ball defender, but off the ball, uh, you know, he just he just looks lost uh, quite a bit of the time, and so they they really have to flesh out that bench.
0: That's for sure. Um, I think that Boston has a better... I feel like Boston's a better chance that, against Cleveland than you do, it seems like. They have home court. I don't know if that really matters because it's LeBron, mm-hmm. but then then again, we're trying to understand the series. Like, if LeBron goes LeBron all the time, then nobody really stands a chance except the Warriors anyway. Um, mm-hmm. But they have that. I think that if they can let LeBron get his numbers and keep Kyrie, if, if like, Marcus Smart or somebody can keep Kyrie contained. I think they have a shot to go six. I don't know if they necessarily can get seven or even win the series, but I think they have a decent shot.
1: Yeah, I think it will certainly be competitive. There'll be a lot of energy. Like, Boston's not going to back down. If they're, you know, down 10 or 15 in the second half, they're still going to be going like gangbusters, and they're going to be physical and, and aggressive with Cleveland. So it'll certainly make for an entertaining series. But... Yeah, I mean, I think it, a lot of it sort of comes down to that Isaiah point. You know, they can't score when he's off the floor. They've really struggled to score when he's off the floor. And when he's on the floor, there's just that defensive mismatch. Um, you know, they they can't put him on Kyrie. Kyrie will eat him alive. Um, and I guess put him on J.R. Smith. Uh, but, you know... He, even Jr. Smith is just going to run him off screens and, um, you know, is going get, to get a bunch of open shots and, um, you know, any sort of pick-and-roll they put him in where he's going to be switching is, is just going to be, you know, catastrophic. Um, so, uh yeah I I, uh I I like Boston I like what they've done a lot I like this roster I sort of like where they're heading I like where it's coming together um I would definitely be interested to see uh Jalen Brown play some minutes against the Cavs he's been um really confident and uh impressive I didn't see a lot of him in college and I read uh so I read some scouting reports and his um his his athletic tools, I feel like, were sort of talked up in some of the scouting reports, but they didn't they didn't jump off the page uh, quite as much as they have during this rookie season. And the statistical concerns, all the statistical models and stuff, you know, he looked just uh, you know like a huge boss waiting to happen. Um, and so I think some of that stuff's been overblown. Uh, and he just, he just plays smart and confident. and Obviously he's got some, some considerable skill development that he needs to go through. But, uh, I think he's a, he's a, a good piece for Boston and it would be fun. You know, that's, that's one of the the nice benefits of sometimes you get in these playoff series. And even though the the losing team is, uh, sort of doomed before it starts, you get to see some young players kind of step up and, and take advantage of the moment and, and maybe uh, tease a little bit about what they could be next year and, and beyond. And um, So I'd, I'd certainly love to see, you know, uh, that the Celtics go down in six. I'd love to see, uh, you know, Isaiah uh, put up some big point totals, but also Jalen Brown and, you know, maybe somebody like Terry Rozier really have a strong series.
0: Definitely. Um, at the beginning of the season and going into this one, I thought that Al Horford would have a much bigger impact if, as he signed with the Celtics, what do you think?
1: Yeah, I thought he would be better too. Um, I thought they would use him. Uh, I thought they would ask him to score a little bit more than they have, um, and I think it's hurt that they just. Um, that they often don't have a ton of shooting on the floor, um, or at least not not shooters that stretch the defense a ton. You know, they they have some guys who put up really decent percentages, but. Um you know, I, I don't. I don't think teams are necessarily scared of their shooters. I don't think teams are necessarily scared of Avery Bradley or Gerald Green or whatever killing them from a three point line. And so it hasn't created as much space um, as uh, as maybe it could have. Uh, you know, with a, a few different faces on the roster. And so some of his playmaking, I think, has been limited. It's it's um, you know meant there's a little more, a few more bodies in the middle of the floor, and he's not scoring quite as much. And then it's just a bummer to watch the. Um, The the defensive rebounding narrative, Um, obviously he's not an exceptional defensive rebounder. You know, he took, it seems like he took all the heat for the Hawks' shortcomings in that area. Uh, It's something Boston struggled with, again, all year, obviously. Some of it is him, um, but it's it's certainly not all him. Some of it's Scheme, some of it's his teammates, and so it it just stinks to sort of see that negative narrative just kind of roll right on.
0: Yeah, obviously he's better than Nene right now, but he would fit really well with Houston in Nene's um, role.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a that's a great spot for him. Um, yeah, you know, I, I thought Boston was going to be a fantastic fit, but um, yeah, Houston in retrospect uh, might have been might have been even better.
0: But, I mean, he, he'd be overpaid for that role, of course, and mm-hmm. he's younger and better. But I think that that would be, just in retrospect, right now, he would fit really well with all the shooters, able to play make, hit the open man in the three-point line off the post and stuff like that.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's, um, it'll be interesting to see what they do. I mean, they're, obviously, they're locked into him for a while, and, uh... Yeah, I don't know. It's um, I mean, obviously they still have some games to be played, and and uh, how the series with Washington wraps up uh, will you know impact their off season, and you know what happens in the next round against Cleveland if they advance will will um, impact their their off season, and um, you know, it's really not impossible that they could get past Cleveland. Um, so you, you, I mean, I don't know, you never know. But uh, thinking about what thing about their range of possibilities this summer is pretty interesting. You know, they, they have the assets to sort of, to, to go all in and try and, you know, land one of those guys that they were linked with the trade deadline. Um, You know, maybe it's Paul George or Jimmy Butler. Um, maybe they try and swing something, move a guy or two, maybe they're moving Horford and they're uh, bringing in Gordon Hayward or Blake Griffin or something like that. But, um, or they're you know they're standing pat and they're you know they're using that pick and they're bringing in Marco Fultz or Alonzo Ball or something like that and they're um, they're really sort of locking themselves into a, a timeline that's three or four years down the road so it'll it, be it be interesting to watch going into next year whether their timeline is whether they set that timeline for now or or you know a couple of years in the future
0: for sure I want to get to some sun stuff but lastly um, what do you think about a um, Warriors-Cavaliers version 3?
1: It's going to be great. Um, I mean, assuming that's that's what we get. It's, uh... Yeah, I don't know. I mean, uh, it feels like anything is in the range of possibilities. It would seem, if you go by the numbers, it would seem like the Warriors would be the enormous favorite, even though both teams have, have swept their way through the playoffs at this point. Uh, Golden State was much better during the regular season. Um you know, uh, played elite offense and elite defense for the Cavs were more, uh, one-sided, uh, but, you know, how uh, do you bet against LeBron James? And, um, there's so much narrative baked in so many interesting storylines to watch both, you know, those little strategy elements, the rotation changes, who guards, who, you know, how the Cavs match up with the death lineup, things like that. Um, Yeah, it would it would be fascinating. And uh, on some level, it sort of feels uh, like it would be a fitting conclusion. You know, would be um, the the story's kind of unfinished. You know, the way the Warriors won the first series with Love and Irving out, uh, and the way the Cavs won the series last year. You know, obviously, was an incredible feat, and uh, the Cavaliers uh, earned every bit of that championship win. But it still feels like there's. I don't know. So we need the rubber, to, need the rubber match. You know, it still feels like the the, the story needs a little bit of resolution. It, it can't end, you know, just the way it did last year.
0: For sure, because I mean, to me, I before the series, I had called even though we knew stuff is a little bit injured. I had called Warriors in five, and if Draymond doesn't get suspended, then it. I think it happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and because he had, he had, I can't believe he hurt his ankle on sweat from Donatas <laughs> units. Oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> But I think that I'm calling like Warriors in five or six in that instance because I'm looking at the roster of the Cavaliers and they have no plus defenders other than LeBron James, maybe I- Iman Shumpert, but more New York Knicks Iman Shumpert, not Cavaliers Iman Shumpert after his injuries, and like <laughs> they added Kevin Durant to what was already gonna, a team that could beat them. I just don't, I just don't see how Cleveland can win that.
1: Yeah, I mean, it would take an effort. Uh, I mean, you feel like it would take an effort similar to what they did last year. you know? It would take something epic from LeBron, and it certainly seems like he's building up to that right now. Uh, I mean, he's been incredible in this playoffs. Um, and, and, yeah, I guess you'd have to buy into the idea that, that Cleveland kind of has another gear defensively and that they could pull it together. And, um, you know, it's... There's so much uh, emotional sort of stuff baked in that, that uh, I, I don't know what's likely or what's probable, but you could sort of see. Uh, uh, you could you could see all of these different uh, storylines as sort of possibilities. You know, Draymond gets a little out of control, or he you know he lets his temper get the best of him again. And how does that affect his team? And how does that affect their chemistry? You know, there was some stuff written this year about um, you know their their chemistry seems so wonderful from the outside, and maybe it's a little more maybe it's a little more tenuous than it looks. Um, you know, how does if, if, if things get rough? How does Kevin Durant respond? Um, uh, you know, same thing on the Cavaliers' side, uh, you know, does LeBron, you know, even after last year, does LeBron really trust Kyrie and Kevin Love, um, you know, and if, if things start going badly, you know, will he sort of uh, let them, you know, trust what got them to this point and and, and work together, or is he going to sort of go back to trying to do everything himself, um, you know, and, and in the, the strategy battle, I don't think... Obviously, Tyron Liu's uh, reputation has come a long way after the win last year. Uh, I don't know that anybody thinks of him sort of as an X's and O uh, guru. Um, and, you know, with with Mike Brown on the sidelines for the Warriors, you know, what does that look like? Uh, a couple of questionable coaching decisions and, you know, then. Does the, do the teams have faith in, in those coaches to sort of make the necessary adjustments? I don't know. It, it seems like uh, all sorts of things can happen, and um, you know, who going into the the Cas Warriors series last year, like who would have thought that it was, um, you know, that the the deciding narrative arcs would be, you know, Draymond's uh, temper and, uh, you know, this epic comeback. And so, you know, we can sort of speculate on on what might decide it right now, but uh, it might be, you know, something totally out of the left field that we didn't even see coming.
0: Yeah, what are the the odds? Who is the the highest odds for who Draymond kicks in the finals? (laughs)
1: Oh, man. Um, Dante Jones, maybe, (laughs) on the sidelines? There you go.
0: Um, I was thinking about this. I was thinking about talking to someone yesterday about this. I'm thinking that the Warriors may stagger Durant's minutes so he doesn't have to guard LeBron, and so he gets to just kind of wreak havoc on second units. What do you think? Like they'll take out, he'll play for, he'll start, he'll play for four or five minutes, come out, and then when LeBron comes out, he'll come back in. What do you think?
1: I mean, that's what. That, I mean, that's what could clearly separate the Warriors. Um from the Cavaliers is their second minute units anytime. I mean, LeBron's played absurd minutes all series long. I don't think there's any reason to think he's not going to play 42 or 44 or 46 minutes a game in the finals. Um, so there, there might not be that much advantage to be gained by staggering, but, um, we saw that in, uh, sort of over the course of the Warriors regular season, you know, uh, Obviously, it sort of took them a little bit to kind of get Durant integrated and to sort of uh, catch their stride. Uh, but once they did, um, they were really killing teams with with those, uh, especially those minutes where Durant was leading the offense with the second unit. You know, obviously their starting lineup was great and then the, a little bit of a stagger to the minutes. Um, and then when Durant went down, they were trying to sort of do the same thing with Clay Thompson and Clay just couldn't carry the second unit in the same way. Uh there wasn't enough spacing around him and he's not quite the the off the dribble playmaker that Durant was. Um and so yeah, I think that's i mean—that's one of the things that sort of has given the Warriors that special gear is that, you know, they can move other people off the floor. You know, they can be the, the team that they were that won 73 games and they can be a team that has Durant and a bunch of bench guys and still kills, uh, still kills opponents.
0: Yeah, obviously Iguodala and Draymond to some extent can guard LeBron, but can Kevin Durant guard LeBron or is he just not strong enough?
1: I mean, I don't think anybody can really guard LeBron. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I think it's probably not to the Warriors' advantage. I don't think... Think the Warriors want to get in a one-on-one Durant on LeBron kind of uh, situation. I think they're they're better off when Durant's moving around, when they're switching, when he's sort of uh, providing a little supplementary rim protection, which is something that's been really underrated about his about what he's given the team this year. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I don't think they want to sort of lock in defensive matchups. I think they want to. I think they want to switch. They want to move things around, and they want to sort of. Uh, force the issue for Cleveland, maybe go Cleveland into into trying to exploit some things that aren't really there.
0: Yeah, and the problem with this time is that LeBron can actually shoot threes this year.
1: Yeah, what a weird... His three-point shooting is so bizarre that, like, some years he can't do it and he won't do it, and some years he's like... Yeah.
0: (laughs) Wasn't it, like, a year or two ago he was at, like, 20% in the playoffs?
1: Yeah, and it looked like... Uh, it was gone forever, you know, it was, like, at that point, it was, like, he had had, like, just, like, these couple, like, blip years where he was, where he was a positive three-point shooter, and then all of a sudden, it, like, was in the tank again, Um, and, uh, yeah, I don't, honestly, I don't know what to make of it, it's, um, I mean, you don't want to say it's something as as stupid as, like, well, he's just concentrating, and he cares more, he tries harder this year, but, You know, I I don't know what else you'd say that's, like, that variable. Um, He, more than
0: anybody else I've ever seen play basketball, has the switch than anybody else I've ever seen.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's no other rational explanation. It's not like the the quality of the shots he's getting this year are dramatically different, top to bottom. You know, it's not like... um, I don't know, like, like you, you'd use that argument for somebody like, uh, like, clearly, like, Kyle Korver's three-point percentages because yeah. he's with Cleveland because now there's all these other defensive threats and he has so much more space. Like, you can't make that argument for LeBron. He's not taking dramatically different shots. Like, there's no, there's no, like, injury or, like, physical reason why his three-point shooting should, should swing that dramatically from season to season.
0: Um, I mean, people are always taking yeah. off on him. No one, everybody wants him to take a three
1: yeah so it's like it has to be it has to be I don't know confidence focus I mean and, and the other thing is it's like uh, I mean obviously there's a bunch of random luck in in sort of like year to year three point percentage but not not enough to ju- not enough to explain away like the enormous swings in his three point percentage from year to year you know random chance might be part of it it might be a couple percentage points, but it's not all of it.
0: Yep. so that that was some great playoff stuff. We're going to move and get to the other side of the playoffs, the other side of the league, back to the Suns. Because I'm I'm here in Phoenix. I got the whole Sun stuff. I want to get some national people talking about different stuff. We'll start with a simple. What do you think of Devin Booker?
1: I don't know. I still have a hard time with Devin Booker. I'm still not sure what to make of him. Um, Obviously, there's a lot to like. Uh, I think he's confusing because he, I think he sort of sits at the nexus of a bunch of, a bunch of sort of like different ideas about player development and skill sets. And, um, like he doesn't quite match up with any of them. And so I don't know, like he's, he's like two thirds of all these, of all these different sort of, uh, arguments of these archetypes. So like, um, I don't know, so, so like if you want to start with criticisms, like he's not a good defender, and he, he doesn't offer a lot besides scoring, um, so you know, I, I've heard the argument that he's kind of like a, like a DeMar DeRozan type, not in the, the shot distribution aspect, but in the fact that like, He doesn't necessarily rebound well for his position, doesn't create a lot of shots for his teammates, doesn't generate steals or blocks. So if you're looking at what he does, it's mostly scoring. And if he's going to be elite, that means he has to be absurdly efficient. And he's not absurdly efficient yet. Um... And so then you think about, like, rules. So how does he become an elite player from there? So he, you know, his efficiency has to take a huge jump. Some of that's shot selection. Some of that's raising his shooting percentages. Or he really rounds out his game and becomes more of a multidimensional player. Um and I'm not sure I totally uh I'm not sure I totally see that watching him. I don't um you don't necessarily see him sort of blossoming into a uh a really sort of multi dimensional kind of player. Um and so then like his his shooting percentages are, are um necessarily line up with the way people see him you know he has this like pristine perfect jump shot form and uh you know he's capable of, of going on these absurd shooting runs but he by the percentages he's not an exceptional uh you know three point shooter or, or, or uh an exceptional jump shooter right now um And so then you sort of have to reconcile, uh, you know, the eye test with the numbers there. And then there's the, the whole issue of his age. He's so young. Um, there are just, there's not a big sample of players this young, uh, playing this many minutes. And so he looks, you, you see those, uh, like you see those tweets on, uh, you know, that are like the basketball reference play index. It's like all the players, you know, who scored this many points in a game by age twenty. You know, it's him and, and four hall of famers or whatever. Um, and I think one of the the one of the things that sort of uh, makes that murky is, you know, obviously he's he's exceptionally young. He's played a ton of minutes, but some of that is circumstance and some of that is where he ended up in the draft. You know, like if the Utah Jazz had taken him one pick earlier, he would still be really young. He would probably have played, I don't know, a third of the minutes that he's played right now for Phoenix just yeah. because Utah, you know, doesn't need him in the same way or doesn't need him to, to do the same kinds of things. They don't have enough, you know, the same kind of minutes to just throw at him. And so, like how would we how would we view him and his potential? Uh, you know, if he was playing in Utah, he might his shooting percentages might look much better because he's sort of playing in a more structured offense. There's more threats, the team's more competitive, his roles more defined. You know, he's he's probably locked into taking better shots. Um, but does does that make him look like more of a star or less of a star? So I don't know. I, I don't know what to make of him. And I think clearly. Um, he's he's got a lot of room to progress two seasons in being exceptionally young i think it's a good thing that he's played this many minutes at, at such a young age but i don't think i don't think that necessarily puts him automatically in the same class as other players who have played this many minutes at this age like i don't think I don't know, whatever it is, he's probably played 5,000 minutes through his first two seasons and he's, he's not 21 yet, right?
0: No, it turns out 21 in October.
1: Okay, so, you know, I don't think he's necessarily as good as all of the other players who have played this many minutes by age 21 i think a lot of that is sort of inflated by virtue of of the situation that he was drafted into um so yeah he's he's got to become more efficient he's got to round out his game he's got to become a, a, a serviceable defender um but he certainly has plenty of time to do those things and you know a, a lot of other things about his game look really good
0: yeah, definitely. That's a lot of good stuff there, Ian. Um, <laughs> Sorry, we're, no, having, we're really right there. No, that's good. I just want to, I just want to kind of talk about some of the things because I watched pretty much most every game this whole in, the last two seasons. I watched basically every game. Um, and I saw some really interesting things from him. You're right. He doesn't rebound quite as well. His playmaking is, is there. His defense will get there. He has enough of it that I'm not it's, it's it's possible and it's probable that he'll be at least a neutral defender, if not slightly above average. But I don't think it's going to be any more than that. Um, his playmaking will be on par with whoever he needs to be on par with. I don't know, say Gordon Hayward. Um... But, yeah, he does have that DeRozan-ish thing right now because, although, that's, a lot of that is skewed by when they, they start tanking or when the la- both seasons, when he loses Bledsoe for, for several, several months throughout both his first two years and becomes the only green light player on the team. Or not only everybody was green light, but when they start tanking. Or, to pl- have people set out so that they lose games. Um, uh, so uh, he has a lot of good qualities, and the, he has it. He has a work ethic. He he ha- does have those chased on blocks. He he's tough. Um, he's mentally tough and physically tough for someone who's so young. He has the potential there, obviously. I mean, and this year, obviously, the efficiency wasn't quite there. But well, he was 25th in scoring points per game, which is mm-hmm. like, is it. It could be pace adjusted and not be as impressive, but still, it's something.
1: Yeah, I, I think um, one of the things that i come back to is uh – And maybe this is a better comparison for him than DeMar DeRozan. It's the the Andrew Wiggins um, comparison. And they're not necessarily physically similar or necessarily the styles of their game, but statistically, you know, so Wiggins is this, like, analytic flashpoint. You know, by the eye test, he looks like he's, you know, ready to be a breakout star, uh, took this huge leap offensively this year. Statistically, most of the all-in-one metrics still see him as a uh, below-average player, sometimes dramatically. So, and uh, so I, I looked at this earlier in the year, and sort of what it comes down to for Wiggins is is this thing that we were just talking about, right? That like he doesn't do anything but score, uh, or he doesn't do as, as much of anything else but score. So, I made this graph earlier this year that showed, like, every uh, wing in the NBA, um, I, I don't know, I can't remember what the parameters were, but it was a bunch of, it was a bunch of star players, uh, you know, uh, players who had played X number of minutes at the wing position by the age of 21, uh, and, it, and it charted them by uh, points per 100 possessions, and then rebounds plus assists plus steals plus blocks per 100 possessions. And Wiggins was dramatically behind, like, everybody else in the everything besides scoring. Like, even behind DeRozan. I can't remember who else was on the chart, but he was, like, like in a, in a class by himself at, at that end of the floor. Um, and so I just, while we were talking, I just pulled up uh, – I did that after three se- seasons of, of Wiggins, but I just pulled up uh, Booker's first two seasons versus Wiggins' first two seasons. And Wiggins' first two seasons um, – he averaged 10.9 rebounds, plus assists, plus steals, plus blocks per hundred possessions, and Booker was at 10.6, um, so just behind Wiggins. So he's he's in that same zone where it's like he he scores a bunch, but when you sort of add together all of the rest of his impact, it's you know it's it's really lacking, um, and so. I think there's something about Booker that almost feels like it's from like an earlier era, you know, where you just needed, you know, where, where a shooting guard's job was to put up big point totals and, you know, and shoot pretty well. Um, and I I think in today's NBA, there just, there just has to be more to his game if he's really going to be in that elite class. Um, yeah, so, so maybe somebody like like Hayward is a good uh, role model or something for him to sort of shoot for. Uh, but Hayward was like a much more... I mean, Hayward, uh, Hayward was almost a primary shot creator for Butler when he was in college, uh, you know, from the wing position. He handled the ball a ton. He ran a lot of pick and roll. Um, and Booker, I, you know, Booker didn't get those same chances at Kentucky because he was playing on this loaded team. And so... Like, again, like, that comes back to this thing that's so weird with Booker. Is like, it's hard to separate, like, what he can actually do from, like, the context and the circumstances that he's playing in. Like, if Booker had played for a team like Gordon Hayward played for at Butler... Booker probably would have won a ton of pick and roll, and he would have had a, you know a full year of of experience as like a primary shot creator at the college level, and he just he didn't get that at Kentucky, and so it may be that we see these numbers, and it's because it's it's you know a red flag that he actually sort of like doesn't have this in his game or it's not in his repertoire, but it also just may be that he hasn't had those opportunities yet, you know, that he played as, you know, whatever, like, the sixth option at Kentucky, and he was almost exclusively a spot-up shooter. And then he's played at this, you know, for the Suns team that's kind of chaotic, and Eric Bledsoe's been in and out of the lineup, and there's not a lot of other offensive threats on the floor, and he's, um, you know, sort of... uh, maybe given even more responsive uh, offensive responsibility than is good for him. You know, uh, like thinking back to that scenario of him getting taken by the jazz, he probably wouldn't look like a future star if he had been taken by the jazz, but he might sort of look like a guy who has a a higher ceiling, if that makes sense. You know, like he, We might sort of see um, these more, there might be some real concrete skills that you feel like, oh, he's definitely going to be able to do that for 10 or 12 years, you know, and and that's going to serve him well. And you look at him in Phoenix and he could score 20 points a game for the next 10 or 12 years. I don't know if he could score 20 points a game for a playoff team. I'm not, I mean, I think maybe I'm not positive, you know, it depends on what else is around him. I don't know if he could score 20 points a game for a championship contender, you know, like there's, there's all of these, these sort of contextual questions around him that I think are, you know, are unsettled and, and ultimately that's like, what's really interesting about him. It makes That's what makes him such a fascinating player.
0: Definitely, and I, I think I was I mentioned this on a couple other pods, episodes, is that I don't think he is the, like, okay, we're talking potential and we're talking crazy stuff, but, like, he's not the best player on a championship team, but he's probably the second best player on a championship team if we're talking super potential, <laughs> um, what he could be. I just don't see him as the best player ever on a championship team. I think though I think next year he'll he'll have the he'll work on the rebounding he'll work on the the playmaking the defense and we'll see what he has I think I, I agree with all that you're saying about context and stuff and then this is seems like a bad uh, ender to it but yet seventy points in a game I mean <laughs> it's like and then he twenty like do well, yeah, I think he ended up averaging like twenty four points a game mm-hmm. and yeah so it's it's kind of crazy that yet you see stuff that. People, most people his age can't do, in NBA in NBA circles, and yet, I mean, there are people who are in their prime who can't do what he can do, and yet he needs to be able to do more if he's gonna if it's gonna propel the Suns to a higher standing. Um, yeah. That's that's I guess that's enough about Booker for now. But let's uh, I want to get your thoughts on kind of this whole murky situation with the Suns, where their their direction is, their strategy. They got the Brandon Knight, Tyson Chandler. They got they got Tucker gone. Uh, they got rid of him. You got Chandler. You got Len. You got all these young guys. You got this pick that's there. Um, you can't really offload Knight, but you have Bledsoe on this contract, but he's injured. What do you kind of see of this whole thing and who they might pick and what it looks like? That's a big question, but take it for what it is.
1: I think they should be willing to be way more unsettled, uh, then maybe they, then maybe they will want to be. I think there's, um, there's an inclination to feel like you have a lot of young talent on the team, which they certainly do. They, to feel like you have a guy who could maybe be a potential star in, um, you know, in in Booker to have a guy who you feel like could be an all-star in Eric Bloodstone. You know, he probably could if the circumstances were a little bit different. He's certainly that, that good a player. um, and to feel like you are adding pieces to that core. And if I was them, I would really be thinking about the core of this team as Booker and Dragon Bender and be willing to, to change anything that they sort of need to, you know, I, um, I don't want to say like to, to really have some long-term vision and not just think about next year, be willing to think about what, what, Kind of team do we want to be uh, three, four years down the road when Booker like is coming in his prime and Dragon Bender is coming in his prime? What what do we want to look like then, and how do we get from here to there? Uh, instead of trying to, to think about it, you know, in terms of making an incremental step forward next year. Um, you know, uh, there are still some <laughs> contracts on the books that would be great to unload. Uh, Brandon Knight and Tyson Chandler seem like they're kind of dead weight at this point. you uh, know, I, mean, I get the the uh, veteran savvy locker room leader you know uh, shtick for for Chandler and, and Jared Dudley, but I, I'm not sure how valuable. It is to them. Uh, I, I'm not sure how functionally valuable it is to them. Certainly, it's valuable from sort of a PR standpoint and, and selling tickets and fan engagement and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, I'd, I'd be you know I, I'd be thinking about Bender and Booker, and I'd be willing to move anybody else. And uh, when it comes to the draft, you know, obviously a lot's up in the air until the lottery locks them into a, a draft slot. Uh, but when it comes to that slot, I think they should absolutely. Be thinking about taking the best player available. It's a little bit tricky because there's this uh, draft is so point guard heavy, and they are already uh, you know the roster is a little point guard heavy. Um, but uh, yeah, I think best player available and somebody whose timeline matches with Booker and Benders, uh, you know, in terms of age, is is more appropriate. You know, they're not. Bledsoe's 27, they're not competing for a title in, in three years, I wouldn't imagine. And so, uh, you know, trying to sort of make the most of, of you know, the rest of Bledsoe's contracts seems like a good way to, to, you know, to lock yourself into some bad decisions.
0: Yeah, Bledsoe's contract's up in a couple of years and, and, and everything. And the crazy thing you were mentioning Booker Entry is prime. I would consider Prime to be 27 to 30. Yeah. <laughs> he would be 24 in four years. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah.
1: Um, and Bender and Bender's 19. I mean, there's so much space. And Chris. But, and who was, yeah, and Chris too. Um, what but do you? Yeah. See?
0: It seems like you're on the Bender bandwagon. I mean, I see some stuff from him, but what do you? What do you see?
1: Yeah, I think I think Bender's going to be really special. I think he. Um, I think he strikes me as a guy who will benefit dramatically from better teammates. I, he's not going to be, um, I don't think he's a guy who's going to stand out as a star. I don't think he's going to stand out as a guy who's going to lead the team. Um, if you think about, you know, you were saying Booker maybe is the second best guy on a championship team. Bender's probably the third, but he's the third in that he can do so many different things on the floor. um, I think he got the short end of the stick a little bit this year, and that he um, ended up having to play on the wing a fair bit. And I yep. think you know he's he's switchy and he has some foot speed, um, but I think that they're ultimately better if that's a smaller part of his arsenal. And if he's um, that, if in terms of their scheme, if he's playing a big position and leveraging that speed uh, as an advantage from a big position, I think that's ultimately where they sort of get the most value out of him. Uh, Instead of, instead of asking him to be a big wing, he should be a fast big. uh, I've been saying that
0: for four months, his best position once he gets stronger is to be a small ball five rather than a big three.
1: Yeah, I mean clearly he, he needs a lot of strength if he's going to play the five. But yeah, I think you're probably right that that's uh, when when you think about what his peak value is going to be, it's going to be probably playing the five. Uh, I think probably his natural position is going to end up at the four, and it's tough because they you know they wanted to give a lot of minutes to Chris this year, and um, I think. You know, it's hard to sort of give up on Chris. He's got a lot of potential. He's really athletic. He's got that three-point shot, uh, you know, in theory. Um, but he just, he looked really, really lost uh, for big portions of the year. And I think he's probably a lot farther away than Bender is. Um,
0: really? People, yeah. I mean, the casual fan wouldn't, wouldn't agree with you based on just the so much production and stuff. Um, but, I, I mean, I kind of agree that... Be- I think the ceiling for Bender is a lot higher than for Chris. But, I mean, I think Chris is... I mean, he you saw dramatic improvement along the season for, for Chris. I saw it.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, he definitely got better. And he's sort of, you know, he's figuring out how to use his body. And he's got these athletic talents. And he's got to, you know, he's got to figure out how to sort of... Um, he's got to figure out how to slot them in. But he's... Um, his his defensive potential is really, um, the difference between, you know, where he is now and his defensive peak is all about awareness positioning. Yep. Um, and I don't know. I, I, just, I feel like I've seen his archetype, his player archetype fail enough yep. that I, that my sort of, my natural inclination is to think, uh, is to sort of think negatively. Um, I don't know for whatever reason I sort of trust the guys who have the the high basketball IQ and and um, and maybe are more limited physically. I, I, for whatever reason, I feel like I sort of trust them to get to their ceiling more than the guys who are really athletic and sort of struggle with awareness. And so I don't know. There's something a little like Tyrese Thomasy about his game, uh, you yeah. know. And I, I mean, <laughs> I don't mean that to sound too negative, Funny. but I. You know like he he could be incredible he could be um, you know he could be a- at all nba player he's got that sort of uh, physical talent and and that he has these uh, a few like specific skills like he as uh, has a weak side shot blocker uh, you know a three-point shooter um, there are some things that he does that are really special um but that you know there's so much so much sort of basic space between that and i was like Seven and a half fouls per hundred possessions. Mm-hmm. Uh, like they're just yeah, there are just so many things where he just really looked lost uh, off the ball, and, you know, so so he's young too. But I, um, I, I think it's more likely that they uh, that this Suns roster peaks around a Booker Bender and you know Star X than it is that they peak around Chris Booker and Star X.
0: I, I agree. Um, also, the thing you said about. Uh, limited physical abilities and high IQ is example A is Jared Dudley.
1: Yeah, there you go. I mean, I, I will never, I, I will never cease to amaze me um, that I mean Dudley. I don't know what you if you would call him a I guess you call him a small forward who you know plays some power forward. He's a small ball four, but you know earlier in his career, you know he was a shooter. He was a shooter he he for a, a while small but, too. But he was like, like he was a power forward when he played at Boston College. Like he was six seven, and he like he played in the post. He was a banger. I'm um, trying to think of who the guy who was who played next to him. Craig Smith, I want to say. Um, and they they were like this like super burly, brawny interior like beat you up, uh, you know, in the paint team. Um, and, and so to see him, you know, like slide out and play the two, like it's it's crazy. Kind of hilarious. Yeah, yeah, it, he's been fun to watch, and um, so I, yeah, I guess maybe having him around as a is a little bit of a mentor for Chris can't hurt.
0: Yeah, I think I mean Jared Ell is one of my favorite personalities, players to watch, and he's just really great for the team. I think that he can be the the the, the vet the veteran. I mean Barbosa's there to be whatever, I and mean, they can get rid of Chandler, but they don't have to. They definitely need to get rid of Knight, um, and then we'll see what happens. But so if they get a point guard, um, this is some great stuff, and I can't. This is great. Um, Let me have you um, plug your stuff, and then I'll plug mine, and then we'll get out of here.
1: Absolutely. Uh, So, yeah, I'm on Twitter at Hickory High, uh, and you can uh, find uh, all the stuff from our team at uh, fansided.com, and uh, the Step Back is our uh, premium vertical. uh, It's more of a columns, analysis, video breakdowns, that kind of stuff. Um, So definitely come check us out.
0: Definitely. I agree with that. They do some great stuff over there, Ian and his team. Um, I'd love that you could, everybody could subscribe to this podcast. It's a Solar Insights podcast. Um, you can get it on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Um, my site's solarinsights.net. Um, we have a podcast episode every, about every week. Some great po- episodes, some great ones before. Go check them out. Got about 20. Been doing this since October. Um, spread the word. Tell all your friends. Have them subscribe. And, uh, we'll talk to you all later. See you later.